Welcome to a new era of Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming, in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. And you can catch us every Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern on your favorite local EWTN affiliate, or you can find us on Sirius XM Satellite Radio Channel 130. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. I hope all of our dear listeners are having a really great week. We've worked hard on our show this week so that uh, we can bring to you some conversations with consequences, things that will make you think and also will make you feel cheerful and optimistic and hopeful about uh, the future and also our future as a church, as a Catholic people. To that, we have a guest, Elizabeth Santorum of the Labore Society. The Labore Society's mission is to rescue Catholic religious vocations from the barrier of student loan debt. Something I had never stopped to think about. I think you're going to find our talk with Elizabeth Santorum really interesting, and you'll want to get involved. We'll also be talking to Ryan Anderson. He's a well-known author and thought leader, and uh, right now he's heading the Ethics and Public Policy Center in D.C. He's been in the headlines recently about his book uh, from 2018 that criticizes transgender ideology. It's called When Harry Became Sally. That book has been taken off the shelves at Amazon. So he's going to tell us all about that, how it happens that uh, the largest bookseller in the world decided that Ryan Anderson's book was so dangerous that it had to be taken off uh, its shelves, its digital shelves. You know, this week has been a week of strange cancellations for all of us who've had children, for all of us who were children, that would be all of us. Um, Dr. Seuss has been taken uh, down by woke cancel culture, at least some of the Dr. Seuss canon, and really, how long will the rest of it last? It's been, some of his books have been accused of uh, promoting ethnic stereotypes that are offensive or insensitive. I think I've read all the Dr. Seuss books um, many times over. I don't remember seeing those things, but I guess I'm not very sensitive about racially insensitive things, as I am uh, a multicultural person living in a very multicultural house and also society here in Miami. And um, we have pretty thick skin here because we're used to being with lots of different kinds of people. You know, taking Dr. Seuss, taking aim at Dr. Seuss, that one just hurts. I have all these wonderful memories of reading to my children. And um, of course, all of us remember that phrase, a person's a person no matter how small. I love that phrase because every time I got to it with all my different children, I would stop and I would say, you know what Dr. Seuss is talking about right here? He's talking about the unborn child. When you were a little baby inside mommy, you were a person, no matter how little and tiny you were and how hidden. So Dr. Seuss, I'm not surprised he's being canceled. Um, It's a very sad thing. Another cancellation that hurt me uh, was the cancellation of Laura Ingalls Wilder. She wasn't entirely canceled, but really, how long will it be before she is removed from our future children's enjoyment? Her Little House uh, books were really important to me. I moved to the United States when I was 11 or 12, and I love to read. And one of the first books I read in English was were her books of The Little House. And she, that was just a fascinating ride into the past. And also into a world which was so different from mine, but also so recognizable. Uh, in a sense, my family was like a pioneer family. And we also encountered different uh, and, and challenging uh, things, things that we didn't always understand. I love the way uh, that in Laura Ingalls Wilder's book, in her family account, um, the family had that, that unity and uh, that connection with each other and dependence on each other, which allowed them to rise above all the things that uh, were dangerous in their culture and their society. How sad that these uh, elements of our culture are being taken away from us and from our children, from our grandchildren. I don't know where it stops. It's a very scary ride that we're all on. I hope that uh, saner heads prevail. And, and really, all of us should, should complain to people like corporations like Amazon, who have so much control over what we are able to consume a friend of mine told me that she immediately went online when she heard about Dr. Seuss and tried to buy them uh, the, the, the hard copies uh, 
uh, of Dr. Seuss, and they've gone up in price. These these banned books now uh, costing up to twelve hundred dollars for a little child book. Yeah, so the people, the liberals who you know are so horrified that uh, the church at one time banned books and people didn't want to, their kids to read Harry Potter are now the book banners and the censors. So next, let's talk to someone whose book has been taken off the digital shelves by Amazon. It's really fascinating and an amazing topic. So let's welcome Ryan Anderson to the show. Thanks for having me. So yeah, I was saying that you're all over the news, and it's true, and and with and with good, and it's and it's something definitely worthy of talking about. The fact that a bookseller like Amazon, which is the largest bookseller in the world, has decided that your book is too dangerous uh, to have on its shelves. Um, Amazon, uh, when they explain why, they say Amazon doesn't sell content that is hate speech or other material that we deem inappropriate or offensive. How do you think that your book land? What category did your book land in uh, at Amazon? Well, so they still won't tell us, which is also really frustrating. Um, you know, it's been over a week now and they won't tell us, you know, which category of offensive material um, they're classifying the book in. They'll just say that, you know, it violates their content policy. Um, they won't tell us which page of the book is the offending passage. You know, is it the entire concept of the book? Is it just any you know, perspective that uh, has skepticism about the wisdom of transitioning uh, human beings. Um, is it, who knows, right? So they, this is something that I think conservatives in particular need to be aware of is that, um, you know, big government can uh, thwart our liberties and our flourishing, but so too can big tech. But with big tech, there's no due process. There's no appeal process. There's no transparency. And so we have no idea why Amazon, um, ultimately did this, although we have suspicions, and then there's nothing really that we can do to make them reconsider. So is that really the case, Ryan? This, I mean, it was so surreal when I heard that this has, had happened to go to Amazon and see that just nothing comes up when I search your book. And this is a book that I bought three years ago. I bought multiple copies of it when it came out because it's so good and you have such a you have a reputation ryan for being one of the most sort of respectful and you know this book was so thoroughly researched you know rigorously so and you argue in such a compassionate way it's hard to believe that they could find you know content um violation um but but so is it true that there's really nothing we can do about this? I mean, um, I know several senators wrote to Amazon kind of um, questioning the political censorship here. What, what's your sense of is there any government action in response? Yeah, so um, that's a great question because there's there's nothing formally we can do just vis-a-vis, you know, the Amazon reps. Um, there is a good chance that, you know, there were four senators, as you mentioned, who sent a letter uh, to Jeff Bezos, the CEO of the company, um, inquiring as to why they've uh, removed the book and, you know, what does this mean going forward? I don't know what sort of uh, legal requirement um, Amazon is under in terms of responding to that. Um, my, my sense right now is that because they are the minority party, they don't have um, subpoena power within the committees and that with um, Bill Barr no longer being attorney general, you know, the timing of this was suspicious that, you know, maybe they're not as concerned about flexing their muscles because with, you know, Holly no longer being in the majority party in the Senate and with um, someone like Barr no longer being the attorney general, they know there's not much directly um, that could be done in response. I, I know Senator Mike Lee, who's been a real champion on this issue, very brave Senator Lee uh, from Utah. He has introduced a bill recently that kind of it, it seems to get to the issue of false advertising because Amazon has responded and said that they host, you know, view, all different viewpoints. But in reality, that's not true. Do you, do you think that's an angle that could get any traction, the sort of false advertising angle? Um Possibly, but, but but then I mean, so then and then the limitation factor there is that they say, well, but we have this content policy where we don't post anything that's you know hate speech or objectionable, and so I just don't know again because they haven't you know given us any actual answer of how does the book violate your content policy. It's a it's like a black box, right? Uh, and they're saying I think as little as possible, precisely out of concern for you know will there be legal action? And you know the more they say 
the greater the likelihood that they step in it. Ryan, when I heard about your book being um, taken off the shelves, I went online and I and I searched it by title and what came up instead of yours is a book that is pretending to be yours or it, it uses the exact same look for the cover. It, it copies your font and the and the and I, I think it's called when ha- why Harry must become Sally. <laughs> it's a it's a parody of your book. And I'm sure that it treats all the same difficult subject matter that your book treats because it is a difficult subject matter when you talk about hormonal and, and, and body alterations. It's they're not it's not something pleasant to read. It, I'm sure it treats it all the same all the same topics but from a different direction. So it seems to me that there's a lot of dishonesty right off the bat in this Amazon policy. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the reality here is most likely that Amazon just disagrees um, with the conclusions of this book. And, you know, I don't know how high within the Amazon hierarchy this decision was made. Um, I don't know who was um, uh, asking them to do this, you know, because it's not as if there was some public campaign against the book. The book had come out three years ago. But it would be really interesting to find out, you know, which activist group had reached out to Amazon asking them to deplatform the book. Or was there a political figure, a member of Congress, perhaps, who said, look, we're going to have the vote on the Equality Act next week. Let's kneecap, you know, one of the most vocal critics of the Equality Act by discrediting his book, by getting Amazon to remove it. Like, who knows? Um, but yeah, the fact that they've left the response book, right? And mm-hmm. the exact title of something like, you know, let Harry become Sally um, responding to the anti-transgender moment, right? It's, it's, it's obvious um, that that book doesn't violate Amazon's policies because they agree with the viewpoint. Right. I think that's where we need to see that there's an orthodoxy here coming from big tech. This is something that we need to take very seriously because Amazon controls over 80%, 83% of the market for books worldwide. So if Amazon decides to delete the idea that transgender ideology could be damaging to children and adults and society, then they have a huge ability to take that idea out of society. That's exactly right. And, and the biggest, um, you know, some people were saying, well, oh, no, the free market's working. Look, Ryan sold a bunch of books at Barnes and Noble or something like that. Um, they're thinking about this as like a spot market, a one-off exchange. You need to think about this kind of like as an entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Which future author is going to right now sit down to write a book telling the truth about gender ideology when that author knows that their book may never even hit the Amazon shelves? Mm -hmm. What future publisher is going to take the risk of publishing a book that tells the truth about gender ideology if they're afraid that their book will never hit the shelves. And then for someone that doesn't have a a high enough profile as I do to, you know, be able to get, you know, media interviews and things like that, their book never gets written, it never gets published, and then everyone else, the readers, never even hears about it. I mean, that's the long-term consequences of when you have kind of an ideological form of um, monopoly here, where all of the big tech platforms share the same ideology, and then they can uh, stifle Uh, the free exchange of ideas. Ryan, you mentioned the Equality Act that the House of Representatives passed last week. And it's hard to imagine that it's just a coincidence that all of this happened at the same time. Uh, We know the Equality Act will move over to the Senate now. Not quite sure what will happen there. But, But you've written about this and you said, if you fear what big tech can do if you dissent from gender ideology, just wait to see what big government will do if the so-called Equality Act becomes law. Can you explain to our listeners what the Equality Act would do and what you mean by that? Sure. I mean, so the the simplest way of thinking about this is take the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the law that Congress passed to combat racism, and then add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes and then exempt this law from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, right? That's what the Democrats in the House just voted on last week, and they passed it. And so just think of everywhere in federal law where we have a law combating racial discrimination, and then realize that if you believe we are created male and female, and that male and female are created for each other, you would now be on the wrong side of the Civil Rights Act. And you wouldn't have any religious liberty claims via the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because they explicitly exempt this new bill, the Equality Act, from RIFRA's protections. And it gets worse. They use an expanded definition of public accommodations. 
Right. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964 used to combat racism wasn't broad enough for today's progressives. So they want to more or less between the Title II provisions, which govern public accommodations, and then Title VI, which governs federal funding, more or less every institution in America would now be governed, either because they would now be classified as a public accommodation or because they receive federal funding. And neither Title II nor Title VI of the Civil Rights Act has religious liberty exemptions. And they've exempted this bill from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is a nightmare for anyone who has a sound anthropology, which, as John Paul II taught us, was the most important question of the 20th century. Was it the nature of the human person? I'm astounded when I think of the damage that young people, that is being inflicted on young people today, and how that damage would be put on steroids by the Equality Act. That's, that's exactly right. Um, and, and, and what it would mean for you know, parents seeking out good medicine for their children, what mm-hmm. it would mean for um, children who will now be uh, um, kind of pushed down a one-way ratchet in terms of if they feel uncomfortable in their bodies, what's the only solution? Puberty-blocking drugs, cross-sex hormones, eventual um, surgeries. This is a disservice to people who are struggling with their gender identity who deserve good, compassionate medicine Right? Medicine that will heal them, medicine that will make them whole again, not medicine that will radically disfigure and transform their bodies. Uh, and yet it's going to be harder for those patients to find good medicine. It'll be harder for parents to find good medicine for their kids. It's going to be harder for doctors and hospitals and just you know all sorts of health institutions to be able to practice good well, medicine. Well, Ryan, uh, again, because it, it turns all of this upside down. I'm not I'm not a lawyer or a policy expert, but I did read the act. Most of it, it's really long. I think that it wouldn't just be hard for parents to get good medical care for their kids or for doctors and hospitals to act in a way that's responsible, but it would be impossible. It would be it would be categorized anything that didn't affirm right away immediately uh, a person's sense of gender, even if that person's four years old, would be illegal. There's a line that says that would be called conversion therapy, and that conversion yeah. therapy would be illegal. They explicitly describe this as conversion therapy in like the opening, like findings of fact, the mm-hmm. preamble of why do we need this bill? The reason, the only reason I was saying it would be harder is because my hope is that Catholic doctors, Catholic hospitals would refuse to comply with this unjust law and would continue to offer sound medical assistance to people in need, right? That our, that our highest loyalty is to Christ. And if there are people who need healing, um, we should um, follow Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, civil disobedience from an unjust law. And then we should get the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty and Alliance Defending Freedom involved representing us in court, right? Because we, we cannot cave prematurely and saying, okay, if this becomes a law, we're just going to stop practicing good medicine. That's so unjust to the patients who are in need. But Ryan, isn't it, isn't uh, it a kind of... That you would still be able to find it. It would be a little bit more difficult. Uh-huh. And then we have to win those cases. And then eventually, if this became law, we'd have to repeal the law. Hopefully, it doesn't come to that because hopefully it doesn't go anywhere in the Senate. Right? So maintaining the legislative filibuster will be very important. Isn't it a kind of cave, though, to step back and, and just use a religious liberty exemption to defend ourselves from an ideology that probably, I don't know, 80 or 90 percent of Americans think is absolutely insane? If we only did that, yes. Right. So, 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 so my thought here is that um, we need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. So we have to be making the, 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 the kind of like full case for why the Equality Act is unjust for everyone, why it's unjust to secular female athletes, why it's unjust to secular patients who need good medicine. It's unjust to secular doctors who want to practice good medicine. Um, so we have to be making all those arguments. And then also we're going to have to be making First Amendment arguments. We're going to have to be making equal protection arguments. My thought here is you want to throw everything against the wall, full court press. Mm -hmm. But again, hopefully this doesn't become law because um, in the Senate, there will be senators who will refuse um, to even get it to the floor. So long as we have the 60 vote threshold closure needed to kind of close debate and then take it to the, uh, the floor vote, this can be blocked. And hopefully people like Mike Lee, people like Marco Rubio, people like Josh Hawley are making the arguments against this, not just based on religious liberty, but just based on the truth of the human person. And if you enshrine a lie about the human person in law, right, if man-made law violates the natural law, there are going to be all sorts of bad consequences. 
Ryan, we don't have much time left, but we want to congratulate you on your new role as president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. And I feel like every time I open my email, I see an announcement of a great new scholar that you've recruited for the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Can you tell us a little bit about your work there and your vision and some of these exciting new scholars you've snagged? Sure. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do so. Uh, I want EPBC already is, uh, um, and I want to only kind of uh, grow it and improve it, but um, make it the most important explicitly Judeo-Christian think tank in the world. You know, we're we're headquartered right in D.C. My office window looks out right on the cathedral's dome. And who we've added in the past month, we added Roger Severino, the transformational transformational, uh, director of the Office of Civil Rights at HHS, the guy who undid all of the bad stuff that the Obama administration did when it came to civil rights and healthcare. Then we added Andrew Walker. He's a full-time uh, professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's gonna be helping um, on some of the more um, kind of evangelical side of the public policy debates we're in. And then just yesterday, we added two postdocs, um, Gabby Gerges and Nathaniel Blake. Um, Gabby did her PhD at Princeton on religious liberty. Nathaniel um, Nathaniel's evangelical, but he did his PhD at uh, Catholic University of America. Um, working on kind of the natural law tradition from an evangelical perspective. We want EPPC to be the place that represents and defends and advances the policy priorities of orthodox believers. Uh, and there's really no institution in DC um, that does it quite the way we do at you know, the highest level of academic and intellectual rigor, but also you know engaging in those debates that matter most, uh, the Becerra nomination, the Equality Act, and I think increasingly, it's going to also have to be some of the big tech censorship, right? We, we can't say all oh, private businesses can do whatever they want to do, right? That's not true. And we're seeing the consequences of, of a way of thinking that goes along those lines. On that big tech censorship, who do you think do you, do you have on your side? What, what kind of political uh, f- frame of mind is able to, to look at that, uh, the, the idea that businesses should be free to do what they want and also at the same time balance the tremendous power that big tech has that just didn't exist a couple decades ago? Sure. I mean, I, I think this is the genius of the natural law tradition, right? The natural law tradition um, takes property rights seriously but it doesn't absolutize Mm. property rights. And that's just true of the entire way that the natural law um, tradition thinks about rights in general. Rights are important, liberties are important, but they're not the only thing that's important. And all of our liberties have limits, right? And so this is why the central concept in the natural law tradition is the common good, right? And the common good is gonna be a multiplex because human nature is multifaceted. There are gonna be lots of different aspects of uh, the political common good. And then we have to ask, all right, how do property rights serve the common good, but how also might they detract from the common good? And what sorts of laws, public policies, regulations are going to help channel private property ownership towards the common good and avoid, uh, you know, prevent it from being abused in a way that's detrimental to the common good, right? So, so I, I just think that this comes, you know, straight out of Aristotle and Aquinas, uh, the Catholic social thought tradition. And, and I think that's really what gives us as Catholics an advantage in some of these debates, right? We haven't um, uh, been misled by some of the kind of like Lockean libertarian kind of extreme positions that, you know, property rights are going to be absolute without exceptions, et cetera, et cetera. So do you see Democrats being able to get on, on board with that? I mean, the Democrats that say that corporations that are in general in favor of corporations Corporate, corporate rights. Do you think that they would be well, able so to this, see through that? What's so fascinating about this is that they, they, they normally are weary of big business and corporate power, and but not when corporate power uses their censorship ability in a way that they like. Right? Exactly. What you have to realize here <laughs> is that, like at the end of the day, um, the biggest principles here are. Um, how can we use power when we're in power to advance our vision of the common good, right? So, so the left is is, uh, is engaged in this. And so I believe it was the day after Amazon delisted my book, uh, two members of the House of Representatives had called on various big tech companies to deplatform Fox News or something like this. Um, and so what they want to see isn't more of kind of like a free market of ideas or the free exchange of ideas. They actually want to see big tech get more active in censoring what they label hate speech. 
uh, and then they would include, you know, this 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 podcast and radio show as instances of hate speech. Right? So, so I think the left um, is unlikely to be our allies on this in the short run. Brian, before we let you go, because I know we're just about out of time, tell us where can our listeners buy your book? Which retailers are still brave enough to sell it? So, uh, thankfully, Barnes and Noble uh, has not caved. Uh, they are currently, as of this recording, out of stock of both the uh, the hardcover and the paperback, but they've ordered. Um, a replacement. And then um, you can buy it direct from the publisher. Uh, so if you go to encounterbooks.com, uh, you can get the book there. I think they're offering like a 15% discount. Uh, and that just cuts out the middleman, right? So one nice thing about buying direct from the publisher is that it allows um, the publisher to keep more of, of that money and not give some uh, to one of these big corporations. <laughs> Ryan, I'm reading a book right now by Edith Wharton, and I don't know the name of the book because it's in a collection, and I'm reading it on Kindle, <laughs> Amazon's Kindle. And uh, it's all about, it's set in the Middle Ages, and it's not very complimentary of the medieval church, actually late Middle Ages. And uh, one of the things it complains a lot about, Edith Wharton uh, complains about, is the book burning. So I'm amazed that uh, we've come back to that, and now it's from exactly the kind of people that complain about things like the authority of the church to help us think properly and correctly about about our lives. And um, I'm sorry that it's that it's hit upon you, but I think that you're a wonderful spokesperson that can a person who can really defend uh, from the from the deepest traditions and on our and our best traditions the the right of your book to exist and to be sold and and on the world's most uh, popular. Uh, bookshelf. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Ryan. And I hope you'll come back soon. And, and please, everyone, go out and buy Ryan's book. Every morning, the Catholic Association peruses the world's headlines and sends to our email list a collection of the most important headlines, the most important headlines to people like us who care about things like religious liberty and the common good. Sign up for our daily media clips at thecatholicassociation.org. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now we're joined by Elizabeth Santorum. She's with the Labore Society. She is the Associate Director of Advancement, and she is doing such important work helping those who have a vocation for a complete self-gift to actually be able to make that happen. And she's going to tell us all about that. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. It's a joy to be with you. You know, I, I have to admit, I didn't know about the Labore Society, and I didn't know about the problem that the Labore Society tries to solve and does solve in many cases. So why don't you tell our listeners about it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I'm actually right there with you because before I joined Labore as an employee, I had no idea that this was even a problem within the church either. Um, so I, I was just as in the dark as you are in so many um, Catholics in the U.S. I, we jokingly at Labore, although more and more, thank goodness, are, are we're just getting out there thanks to great hosts like you and so many others. But we often joke that we were solving the problem that knew and knew existed. And, and it really is a significant one. So what Labore um, specializes in um, is helping men and women who have a vocation to the priesthood or religious life to resolve their educational loan debt so that they can enter formation without hindrance. So this is a huge issue in the church in America because, as we all know, student loan debt is just an increasing and ever-increasing problem for people of, you know, goodwill. It's not that, you know, these are irresponsible people. They, you know, go out and get a college degree, and like most Americans, they end up with some type of college debt. But the problem is most seminaries and especially religious orders around the country either have no threshold they're able to accept in terms of student debt or it's it's most people, the average student debt in America, you know, depending on where you look, is about 60,000. Um, and most dioceses don't can't even accept that threshold. So that's the problem we're solving generally. This month right now in our in our parish and the whole Archdiocese of Miami, we're doing the ABCD campaign, which is the the campaign where the entire archdiocese pitches in and we support the seminary. I mean, lots of other projects of the archdiocese, but the seminary is a really big, important part of our archdiocese. And I sort of assumed that by doing this, by supporting the seminary, that the students were able, the priest uh, students were able to enter and just be happily accepted and go on their way. But 
Wow, I never considered the fact that I know from a lot of young people that I um, that I know personally that they are beholden to this debt that they have to come up with the money every month, sometimes $600 or $800 or $1,200. And if you're studying at the seminary, where is that money going to come from? Right, exactly. That's exactly it. And, and, you know, even the greater concern of, you know, especially if you're taking a vow of poverty, you know, uh, with different religious communities, so many of them don't even have the capacity to be able to do that, let alone even if they would want to. Um, and, so, you know, who we talk to primarily are men and women that are, you know, have said this beautiful, like you said, this self-gift, this generous yes to our Lord that, you know, I want to discern, I want to, you know, consider giving my life to you, right? How beautiful. And as a church, we need to be there to be able to support them, to just unlock the door of formation is really what Labrae does. Um, in so many ways, we, we our, our tagline is um, help rescue vocations. And that really is truly what we, we do and how we view ourselves the church sort of on a on a boat right um, rescuing vocations so that they can even participate in formation right we're sort of the first um, mile marker of entry because so many people believe it or not there was a study done several years ago that said about 40 percent of active voca- act, those actively discerning a vocation were prevented from joining because of this issue wow. so can you imagine if we almost double the number of vocations in America like what our culture would look like a more a world with more Catholic priests and brothers and sisters. And that really is the vision of Labore. I love that concept of rescuing vocations because we spend a lot of time praying for vocations and yes. trying to make environments where children are growing up in a, in a spirit that would, would recognize a call from God and then would have that freedom to answer it. And one, I don't think, most people don't think of that material uh, hindrance that would sink this this beautiful spiritual gift that we spend so much time praying for. Right. And, you know, at Labore specifically, we focus on the idea of student debt. So it's educational debt. It's not credit card debt or car loans. You know, we're not dealing with other things. If they went out and bought a Ferrari, we can't help them. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where, you know, where we really can step in and shine is, you know, we've helped people that were biochemists that have, you know, masters in art, you know, art and speech therapists. And I mean, just amazing kind of unique careers that God has really pulled from the trenches of, you know, we've former doctors and lawyers. I mean, just all, all these fascinating career paths. And, you know, where these people obviously, you know, went to medical school, school or went to become a lawyer or whatever it is, or even just a good undergrad education with the full intention of using that in their life. And obviously then God called them from the midst of that. So what, you know, what we have loved watching is our alumni who just blossom in their, um, in their vocations in part because of the education and experiences they received in life, which our program obviously helps to relieve. And Elizabeth, tell me why you call it, uh, why, What's the reference to Labore? Oh, it's a great question. So our founder, um, who in the early 2000s was a businessman in the Twin Cities, and he told this story so affectionately about how he was approached by the, uh, a woman who was uh, asking him for career advice. And he said, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? And she said, well, I used to have a calling to be a sister. And he said, wait, hold on a second. You didn't used to have a calling. You do have a calling. And why did that change? And she said, because I had student loan debt. I, I couldn't enter. And so I, I thought that God must not be calling me. Oh. And he, so he got together with a bunch of his, you know, friends and resolved her debt. She's now been a professed Carmelite for years now. I mean, it's been that long. And then I, I think it was five years later, she was approached by another woman, again, wearing a large miraculous medal, who asked the same question. And so at the time he was like, okay, number one, you know, these women are wearing huge miraculous medals and it's, they're asking me the same question. He said, this can't be a coincidence. So he researched it. He prayed more about it. He realized there was nothing in the U.S. that was really solving this problem. Um, and he began Labore. Um, so obviously St. Catherine Labore is the visionary of the miraculous medal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, um, he felt a calling just, you know, a prompting from the Lord to name it after her. And as our, our Lord loves to have it, right, these little God winks, years after that, he, he found out 
out that St. Catherine, I guess at the time that she joined her convent in Paris, someone had to pay for her dowry to the convent. So different, but but again, a, a, a beautiful parallel. Well, I don't know. It's not that different, I don't think. I mean, for a girl, yeah. a, for a girl to take her step into womanhood, she needed a dowry because womanhood usually meant marriage. So if she was going to go into the convent. She had to come up with the same sum, right? Yep, it's exactly. That's right. How beautiful! If you're just joining mm-hmm. us, we are chatting with Elizabeth Santorum of the Labore Society, a society that rescues vocations. How wonderful is that? I love that story that he was approached twice. You know, I wonder. I know that God comes calling at our door. He sends us uh, messages. He sends us smoke signals. <laughs> he sends us telegrams. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Pony Express. He finds everywhere, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. So what kind of um, what kind of people have you been helping recently? Can you tell us a story of someone interesting? Oh, my goodness. There, there are so many beautiful ones. One of my, I mean, one of the best parts of my job has to be all the beautiful alumni that uh, we get to keep in touch with. And I'll, I'll share one. I mean, there's so many beautiful ones in terms of the work our alumni are doing, but just the relationships and impact that I think they're going to be able to have in the world because they said yes, and then God opened the door to elaborate in their lives. So one of them is... Um, amazing man. His name's uh, Dan Sinoski. And I'm forgetting his profess name. He just took his profess name a few months ago. And he's with the CFRs, uh, Father Grishel's Order of Franciscans up in New York. And he sent us this beautiful letter at Christmas. And just talking about the people that he was, you know, witnessing to on the streets. Uh, For those of you that don't know the CFRs, they have a a beautiful kind of radical charism to serve the most at risk amongst Mm. um, the poor of the poor. And so in this letter, my husband and I are reading, we were just, you know, we're, we're crying, honestly, you know, reading, reading his letter and the stories he was telling about just the individual connections and, and, and souls he'd met along the way. And I just, at, at moments like that, I know in working for Labrade day in and day out, you have these um, beautiful moments of illumination where you really get a glimpse, just a glimpse at what God is doing in the tapestry of life um, and how Labrade is one thread of that. How satisfying it must be to work at something like that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's incredibly rewarding. And um, the, I mean, the blessings, I feel like I have so many spiritual brothers and sisters in them to, to pray. So we are we are definitely spoiled at Library, but our whole Library community really is. I mean, the, the, the name Library Society is not a coincidence. Um, we really believe that vocations, right, not even just in prayer, but in financial support or um, a community, right? Like the, the, the men and women who are a part of um, our work are prayed for, right, by our, our alumni across truly across the world we have um we have sisters and uh, brothers and religious orders across the globe um we have one we communicate regularly in norcia italy and obviously there are a lot of americans that end up in international orders and missions but the the good the good fruits of labore thanks be to god are now around the world and praying for our society and what kind of what's more common for you is are you helping pre-center seminaries or nuns and uh postulants under yeah. convents what what's what do you see yourself working with most yeah it's a great question so we work actually a little bit more with religious life um than diocese although we have um kind of an interesting new program that we rolled out this year at labore because of exactly what you were talking about actually um in terms of the needs of seminaries so we were approached by so many different um community seminaries to say okay we know we don't need help just with getting people into formation which we do, and you know that model continues to thrive um, and serve so many people. But we also are launching this year a new model, which is what we're calling our kind of our class model. So this is our tuition class model, which has a different audience, which is a lot of seminaries and religious communities with people already in formation. Um, so in that program, we're seeing a huge uptake in priestly help um, because these are people that once they're in formation, we can help them to serve better serve the diocese um, to help defray the cost of their seminary number one. And number two, it really gives them lifelong skills of kind of confidence, fraternity with each other as they work together. And then practically speaking as well, it just is, it's a great teacher because, you know, we all know that at different parishes, you know, I know very few where they're like, gosh, we just have a surplus of money. Um, <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great thing for pastors to kind of know the basics of how to steward, steward those gifts. 
How, how has the pandemic affected your work? Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I, I think like so many organizations, we've just had to pivot to a virtual model. We So the way Labrae works um, is that we have a class model. So we bring in at most 25 men and women from different religious communities, dioceses across the country, and we put them through what was traditionally a three-day in-person boot camp. Um, they go through like a fire hose of state-of-the-art training of, of basically how to fundraise as a class, not just for their own vocation vocation, but for each other. So there, that there's never a one-to-one with Labrae. It's a one-to-many. Um, and with the pandemic, we've had to switch that boot camp training to be virtual. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's an amazing challenge, right? I mean, we're a very um, solution-minded organization. So it was just a new opportunity to communicate differently, I think, with them. And um, amazingly, we've seen, I mean, the success rates continue at the same rate. I'm really glad you're doing that. It, it seems to me that when we're being approached all the time, I'm being approached all the time, and I'm sure all our listeners are, for calls uh, for our charity, for assistance, yeah. and for all sorts of wonderful things, right? Whether it's the Multiple Sclerosis Society or a, a, a myriad of things. And we, it'd be wonderful for, for the church and all our needs to also be represented in that, in that space in a way that's really professional and really can achieve the kind of success that we need to keep, for instance, our seminaries open. Right, right. No, I completely agree. And, and that, that is really the model that we hope to convey with Labrae is that, number one, stewardship and philanthropy is, can be done in a way that is, leaves both parties better off than before, right? Yeah, and isn't sure. that, you know, the mission, right, of every good human interaction is to leave each other better loved for, for being with each other. And, and I think that that really is the heart of the Labrae model and mission is to, to, to help and equip these men and women to sit down, you know, we follow a, a, a kind of, you know, proven process of, of fundraising, but it, it culminates really in a one-on-one meeting. So whether that's in Zoom nowadays or over the phone, or um, the point is to have that kind of heart-to-heart human interaction where there's not only just the piece of, you know, the solicitation of the gift, but it's, can I pray for you? Can we stay in touch, you know? And um, can, and also, for in so many instances, it's amazing. It becomes a moment of evangelization. Um, we've had so many alumni that have met with people of different faiths who have ended up supporting them. And we've had, it's just, it's fascinating to watch. But the power of a man or woman personally sharing their vocation story in a world where I feel like is a culture of so much selfishness so often it's it's a fascination to the secular world the idea that you would give your life away um, you know to serve some some something greater than you right mm-hmm. um, so that's something I, I love very much about our model yeah I like that I like that it's a it's all apostolate all the time right exactly that's exactly. beautiful. And, well, you're the Director of, ed- of Development. Yeah, right? Associate Director of Advancement. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Development, so Advancement. Um, how do you fund Labore in general? Yeah, great question. So we have two silos of funding at, at Labore, which we really look at that way. And the first is the funds that are raised from our classes. So the men and women that go out, we teach them biblically-based fundraising, they go out and they raise money in, in our program with you know key metrics of stewardship, accountability, we pair them with an accountability partner. The money they raise is in a certain silo of funding, right? Mm. And it, then it's awarded to them over the course of three years. So that's that's a really important part of our program because it protects the canonical freedom of discernment that they have to have in either the seminary or religious life. And so what that means practically is that we're making a minimum payment on the loan for three years and then the final payout on the 36th month. So that really preserves their freedom of discernment and the benefactor knowing that if that person discerns out, their money is always going to go to an active, actively discerning vocation. So what I do is I help fundraise money for the general fund of Labrae. So that pays for us to have the boot camps, to, you know, film their vocation stories, to provide them with marketing materials and the training people that we need, right? All the kind of back-end work to make the loan payments, like all everything that it takes for Labrae to operate and keep the lights on is what I help with. Well, your website is very beautiful. I was on your website oh. earlier today and it's okay. very inspiring and it has different it has different parts for different people who are who are looking for instance it has a beautiful section for people who are to who do have the vocation and are saying how can i make this happen 
and also for people who want to donate and be part of the project. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Our, our site is very hopefully intuitive and informative for everyone who's interested in learning more about our aspirants or about our general program. So if you're listening to this and you're like, that's me, I have a vocation and I have student loan debt, we'd be so happy to talk with you. And there's a section on the website for that. Um, And if you're listening to this and you're like, gosh, I had no idea that this was, you know, an issue and I want to get more involved. We're always looking for more accountability partners. Um, What those are, you know, men and women, you know, across the country who can commit um, an hour a week to spending time with an aspirant, you know, a man or woman who's just starting a vocation in our program um, and helping to keep them accountable and on track. It's a beautiful way to volunteer. So that as well, it's another great way to get engaged. And, and, what, and what do you mean by that, Elizabeth, to keep them on track? Yeah, so the the accountability really looks like how many calls did you have this week? How many letters did you send out? And honestly, there's there's those kind of important metrics that are good to keep in touch with. But as a mentor, so much of it is praying for them and encouraging them because so often what we find in the library model is that you know often these men and women are are holy and humble and really beautiful. And I think that there's the sense of oh my gosh, am I worthy of this? Right? It's the internal struggles or the mm. spiritual battles that they're going to fight on this journey. And so an accountability partner is really like the Gandalf to the Frodo, right? Um, <laughs> kind of the guide on the journey um, to help them get um, to the to the finish line. Well, thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us today. We're all out of time, but it's wonderful to hear about the Laboree Society. And I hope that all our listeners will go to rescuevocations.org where they can read more about it and maybe become part of this beautiful project of rescuing vocations. So thank you for telling us all about it, Elizabeth. It's my pleasure. And we're always looking for monthly members. So if you go to the site, we'd be so grateful for your support. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege to join you again to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with us in the Gospel this Sunday, when we will encounter a Jesus with whom many of us, especially today, are unfamiliar, a Jesus who speaks to us through a powerful prophetic gesture. The same Jesus whom Isaiah prophesied would not break a bruised reed nor quench a smoldering wick, the same Jesus whom the Psalms would call kind and merciful, the same Jesus who called himself meek and humble of heart, started overturned tables, tossed money on the floor, and made a whip of cords to drive the sheep and the cattle out of the temple. There's no contradiction between the image of Jesus, the kind, merciful friend of sinners, and Jesus is consumed with zeal for his Father's house, because out of love for his Father and for sinners, Jesus hated the sin that can kill sinners and divide us from the Father. The word St. John uses to describe how Jesus drove out the animals is the same verb used when Jesus did exorcisms. Jesus was doing an exorcism of the temple in Jerusalem. The temple had been built in order to be God's dwelling place on earth, a place to encounter him in prayer, but it had devolved into something very different. It wasn't so much the fact that animals were being sold or money exchanged in the temple precincts that bothered Jesus. It was two things associated with this selling of animals and exchanging money. The first was that the money changers and animal sellers were ripping off the people. The temple had become a den of thieves. When people came to the temple, they needed to sacrifice an animal to God, the size and value of the animal being determined by their personal means and the type of sacrifice being made. Rather than carry an animal with them for the many miles uphill walk to the temple, which is too much of a burden, most would just buy an animal at the temple. But because there was such a huge demand, especially at the time of the Passover, the merchants had the market to drastically overcharge people who needed the animals. Others, who would try to save money by bringing an animal their own, often had to get the animals inspected by the temple officials, who needed to verify that the animals brought were unblemished, as the Mosaic law stipulated. These inspectors often were on the take of the animal sellers to find blemishes that weren't there, so as to disqualify the affected animals. The poor would save their money over the course of the whole year for the trip to the temple, therefore. One way or the other had to pay these enormous prices. While they were there, they also had to pay a temple tax, which needed to be given in one of two types of acceptable temple currency, a temple shekel, for example. That meant that almost everyone had to exchange money, and the money changers could make exorbitant commissions, which again penalized the poor most of all. Jesus was outraged that people were coming into the temple to rip off God's poor. 
That was the first thing that incensed him. Second was worse. The Jewish mentality had become so distorted over the centuries that they began to look at their relationship with God as something contractual or even magical. As long as I sacrifice this animal to God, they began to think to themselves, everything will be all right, God will be happy. Too many people had started to look at the temple as the place to go to bribe God with animal sacrifices. They'd started to look at God as someone who needed to be bought by blood in gifts. God had said many times through the prophets, it's a contrite heart I seek, not animal sacrifices. But they hadn't gotten the picture. So Jesus gave them all a lesson they would never forget, and we would never forget. Jesus wanted to return first the temple to its place of prayer and the people to the true worship of God. He wanted the temple to be his father's house once again. He wanted the people to recover a real notion of what their relationship with the father should be based on. A contrite, merciful, loving heart. When asked why he was doing what he was doing, Jesus pointed to another temple, the temple of his body, which he said would be destroyed but rebuilt in three days. This is the true temple. The authentic locus of divine worship, the genuine house where God dwells on earth. But Jesus' plan for that rebuilt temple wasn't coextensive with his flesh, but with his mystical body. His plan was to incorporate us into that temple. When we're baptized, we enter and become part of it. We become members of Jesus' body, and ourselves become dwelling places where God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit truly abide. This is what led St. Paul to say in his letter to the Corinthians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you're not your own? Our body and soul are a temple of the Holy Spirit, meant to be a dwelling place of God, where God speaks, where he's praised, where he's glorified. This is the temple that Jesus wants to make sure is clean, a real house of prayer, a real place where God is worshipped church gives us his reading on the third Sunday of Lent, because Jesus wants to give this far more important temple than the one built by Herod a thorough cleansing. Zeal for us consumes him. He wants to drive out of our bodies and souls anything unfit for God. He wants to eliminate any sins. He wants to extirpate any of the seven capital vices. He wants to purify us of all impurities. He does this out of love for God and love for us and out of hatred and anger toward the sin that kills us and separates us from God. Our temples may not have money changers, but our hearts may value money more than we value God. So we put work above prayer or even above mass. So we place a security in the material things of this world rather than in God's providence. Our temples may not have sheep, cows, and lambs, but we may live like animals according to our lower instincts and appetites rather than as mature, loving, self-disciplined children of God. Jesus wants to clean us this Lent of everything that doesn't belong in his dwelling place. Through almsgiving, he wants to drive out our materialism and unite us to his spiritual poverty so that we might truly treasure his kingdom. Through fasting, he wants to drive out our hedonism and unite us to his consecrated chastity so that we may indeed love God and others as he loves his Father and us. Through prayer, he wants to expel our radical individualism and idolatry of autonomy and bind us to his holy obedience so that we may together with him consecrate ourselves to the Father's saving will in all things until death. Every Lent, Jesus seeks to reconsecrate the temple he has created us to be by incorporating us anew in the destruction and rebuilding of his own body, the true temple, raised on the third day. He wants to make our interior a place of true prayer. He wants to fill us with his own zeal out of love for the Father and for others. He wants to stoke in us righteous anger toward the sins that desecrate that temple and allow him, through a good confession, to cleanse and restore our temple back to its baptismal splendor. Those are the results of the consequential conversation he wants to have with you and me this Sunday. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 